Welcome to the Compliance Time, AML and Financial Crime Podcast. Here, you can learn from compliance experts, enthusiasts and creators who are contributing to the fast-moving and dynamic field of financial compliance. Hello everyone and welcome to Compliance Time. In this episode, we are asking, are you ready to experiment with compliance in order to make it better and more efficient? Can we implement different ways and use tools from other areas of business which would inspire compliance within the firm? In this episode, we are going to explore the connection between compliance and behavioral science. Guest on the podcast is Christian Hunt, the founder of Human Risk, a behavioral science-led consulting and training firm specializing in the fields of ethics and compliance. He was formerly managing director at UBS, where he was head of behavioral science. Christian joined the firm in compliance and operational risk control, leading the function globally for UBS asset management. Prior to joining UBS, he was COO of the UK Prudential Regulation Authority, a subsidiary of the Bank of England responsible for regulating financial services. Christian speaks and writes regularly about behavioral science and human risk. He also hosts and produces the Human Risk Podcast. You must check that out. Links will be in the show notes. And now, let's hear from Christian. Hello, Christian, and welcome to Compliance Time. I am very excited to talk to you today and um, to hear your story and learn from your experience. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. <laughs> Great. Um, I'm expecting an awesome conversation. So let's start with um, telling us more about yourself and your career path in compliance. Sure. So I uh, founded a company called Human Risk that specializes in bringing behavioral science to compliance and ethics. And uh, I I basically started to uh, get into behavioral science while I was working at UBS and I was heading up a compliance and operational risk function covering one of the, the businesses, and that was asset management. And I started to use behavioral science there. And so they allowed me to set up a behavioral science function at UBS. And then I uh, decided to uh, strike out on my own and do do that thing. Before joining UBS, I was COO at the Prudential Regulation Authority, which is one of the two financial services regulators in the UK. Um, I had joined what was the Financial Services Authority. That was the predecessor regulator after the crisis where they were looking for people who weren't natural regulators. And I spent my time initially at the regulator in supervision, which is the bit of the regulator that faces off against firms. And I was looking at international banks in London. Uh, So I moved from there to become COO. And prior to joining the regulator, I had a a sort of varied career across financial services um, in investment banking at Deutsche Bank. And then uh, I also worked for a family office as well. So I've really transitioned from I guess, the front office in financial services uh, via regulation into compliance. That's amazing. Um, There are people that are entering through so many different ways in compliance, which makes it very diverse and with different experiences. So that that sounds really great. So tell us uh, a bit about the human risk and what it does, what what it actually produces in terms of uh, contents, trainings. Sure. So um, human risk, I should probably define what I mean by human risk. It's the name of the company, but it's also the risk that it helps people to mitigate. And I define human risk as the risk of people doing things they shouldn't or not doing things they should. And that's a very broad definition. So that covers everything from people intentionally setting out to commit fraud 
or people just making mistakes because they're tired. And you'll notice in that definition, I've covered action and and a more passive approach. We often think about people doing things wrong, making mistakes, taking risks, but actually not doing things can be just as risky if the thing that you're not doing is important. And so what I cover under that umbrella is is the sort of range of of topics. Uh, So it, it is at its core, it has compliance and ethics, but it also means I get involved in things that you might think of as more traditional sort of HR topics, because all of these things influence people's behavior. We tend to think of compliance as a control function, but there are lots of other functions within organizations that are also control functions. So HR has a lot of influence over the way people behave, as does, for example, audit in the way that they Mm -hmm. issue their audit findings. That can have implications for that. So that's the broad territory I cover. And what I do is is three things. Um, The first is just talking to people about this idea that behavioral science is uh, relevant to, to what they're doing. So in compliance terms, we often think about compliance as being relevant to regulation. You know, what's compliance about? It's all about rules. But actually, in practice, if you want an organization to be compliant, it's the people within the organization that will determine whether that's the case. You can't just say to a company, be compliant. You need to influence the people within it. And so we write policies for people. We send people on training courses. And so the way that we do that influences whether they do the things we want them to do or don't. And so the first thing I do is is really make people aware of that, to explain that, because it's not a way that we traditionally look at compliance at all. So there's a lot of of speaking uh, and a lot of getting people to think differently about it. Second thing I do is training. That's where I give people behavioral science skills that are relevant to their role um, in, in terms of teaching them about basics, the basic ways that we make decisions. Sometimes the way we make decisions is not the way we think we make decisions. And so I help people to use techniques that are deployed in advertising and in other contexts and show how that's relevant to compliance. So I teach people frameworks and ways of, 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 of practically doing this. The third thing I do is then consulting, where I will come in and help solve a specific problem. And that might be a regulatory remediation. It might be just an area that you've recognized needs improvement or you're implementing something new and you want some specific help. Uh, typically that also involves an element of training because what I like to do is make sure that my clients are not just solving the problem they've called me to solve, but they also equipped to look at other things. In other words, if you have the same problem again, you don't need to call me back. So that's the, the, the broad range of things. And I'm working on various digital tools and other things to support that. All right. That's great. And you're mentioning behavioral science. How did you reach to the point? Because that's not very common way of thinking in compliance still, unfortunately, I guess, um, that uh, it can be paired with behavioral science. How how the idea of pairing them and influencing um, the the area where where the behavioral science uh, came to light for you? Yeah, so you're right. It is very unusual. And that's why when I talked about my business, I I have to explain this to people. It's not an obvious link. But when you think about it, it it actually does make a lot of sense because ultimately we have compliance programs to protect the organization. um, And those programs are directed at individuals. And so when you look at things going wrong in organizations, there's always a human component either causing the problem in the first place or making it worse. And so even if you take something like a natural disaster, if you don't have a plan in place or you react badly, you can make the situation worse. And what I started to realize as I was heading up this um, compliance and operational risk function 
was that when things went wrong, there were people involved. And I started to look and say, well, if, 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 we, if we could stop people doing the things that we don't want them to do and get them to do the things that we do, that, that would be success from a compliance perspective. And then I started to think about how we were doing that. And what I started to realize was that a lot of the methods we use didn't feel particularly effective. And I had a particularly unique insight, which was that I had been at the regulator. And so I had been the regulator for the firm that I was working at. And so I knew what the regulator was trying to achieve because I'd been that regulator. And I was also on the ground taking responsibility for that being implemented. So emails would be sent in my name, uh, policies would be issued in my name. And so I felt a very personal responsibility to make sure that we were doing, we were getting the objectives that we wanted. And I started to realize that sometimes we were doing things that were the way everybody else managed it was theoretically correct, but actually human beings don't always operate in the way you want them to. And I started to sort of look and say, well, why do I find this training not engaging? Why, why, why do we have a problem with this policy? And what I started to realize was that behavioral science was not just something that I had a, a passing interest in, which I had for many years. It was actually core to what we were trying to do. And I started to compare how we were trying to influence people with the way that, say, advertisers or governments try and influence them. And when you think about it, if you're trying to influence someone to buy a product or a service, then you are, you're, you're basically trying to get them to do something. And Or if you're a government and you're trying to get people not to do something, COVID's a really good example, you are engaging in the business of persuasion. And I suddenly realized that actually you, all compliances is just a different context. So very loosely defined, you know, if you, if you want to say the cliches, marketing is about getting people to buy something. Uh, compliance is about getting people not to do something. Very, very simplistic, but it, it's, it's almost like an anti-marketing. And so if techniques work in advertising, why wouldn't you deploy those same techniques? So I had this kind of light bulb moment that we could use behavioral science to more effectively deliver the outcomes that we wanted. And so, you know, that, that became a, a little bit of a mission. And I came up with this slogan of bringing behavioral science to compliance. And, and that rhymes nicely. And what I started to do was test those things out and just try some things and experiment a little bit. Does it make a difference the way we word an email? Does it make a difference how we, we define the policy? Does it make a difference if we think about the psychology of a particular control? You know, what impact is that having on people? And what you very quickly realize when you look at the world through that lens is that lots of things we do, you would not do in another context. We're doing things that work on a theoretical basis. We are planning for the way we would like people to behave, not the way they are likely to behave. And the moment you open that door, you do two things. You can spot inefficient processes and systems. So companies are spending a lot of money on systems that don't work. It looks good on paper, but it's terrible in practice. The second thing you do is you start to open up the possibility of different ways of getting people to be compliant. And you can use techniques that don't normally sit in the compliance toolkit, but do sit in other people's toolkits. And so you can, you just gives you a much broader range of ways of approaching it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's lovely because it's supported by scientific research. So we can take academics have done studies and looked at this. So that gives us a good clue as to what might work. And then the second thing we can do is we can borrow ideas from other contexts. And so I'm very big at looking at how, how have governments approached COVID? How is that store trying to get me to buy a product? Uh, what, what things have we got going on around us? Which work and which don't? And that gives us some really good ideas, which means we can be much more innovative about how we approach compliance. 
That's really great. Do you think at the moment compliance is lacking some of this innovation? Yeah, I mean, if you were one of the things that I always say is I hate the word compliance mm -hmm. because if you were trying to create a brand that was sort of unappealing, bureaucratic, awful, you would come up with something like compliance and then you'd make it worse by adding the word officer to it. Yeah, <laughs> there's a reason no kid grows up wanting to be a compliance officer. And so I, I think it's not, you know, it doesn't naturally associate itself with innovation. And so, you know, we, people, if you, if you ask anybody in an organization, say, do you think compliance is innovative? There's a high likelihood they will say no. And when we do think about innovation in terms of compliance, we often think about technology. And of course, there are certain tasks within the compliance responsibilities that are absolutely, you know, much better done through machines, right? They are much better at it. They do things humans can't. They're more reliable kind of stuff we should be putting through those systems. But there's a lot of other things where we can't give it to the machines, where there's a human component required. And it's those elements that I focus on to say, actually, I think we can do this more effectively. We can try something a little bit different. And so when you think about how training works, how policies are written, you know, they follow very traditional patterns. And what I am encouraging people to do is to say, I think we can think differently about this. And we can focus on compliance, not as a process, but as an outcome. And if we get the outcome we are looking for, we can deem that to be successful. And so that's, that's how I look at the world. And I think absolutely it is a core part of innovation. So I think there are two sciences that can really help us in compliance. One is data science and the other one is behavioral science. Yeah, you're mentioning these, um, but what type of lessons and what can be, for example, applicable to compliance from these two marketing data and, uh, you know, behavior science, or maybe some other fields that compliance can profit of? Because it feels like it's a, a little bit of an unfinished canvas that you can um, borrow somewhere, some parts and components to make it uh, look better. Yeah, and and uh, you know, I when when I try and when I work with clients to solve a particular problem or to look at an area, um, I will look at what they're doing, but I will very quickly dissect what are we trying to achieve here? Are we trying to encourage people not to do something? Are we trying to encourage people to do something? Mm -hmm. What are the incentives on those people? I don't just mean money. I mean literally, how easy is this process to do? If something is difficult, we're less likely to do it. Um, you know, if something seems attractive and appealing, we will be more likely to engage with it. And so if you think about something like airline safety briefings, airline safety briefings are a form of compliance requirement. The regulator requires airlines to read that safety briefing. Now, if you look at the way they do that, you, you, they, they're very innovative. They think about how to engage the customer. If you think about the time that they do the briefing, they don't send you a, a link to a YouTube video six months before you get on the plane. They give you the briefing at the point when it's most relevant in an engaging manner. And, and so you know, if you compare that to many aspects of, of mandatory training within firms, you know, it's given to you, and sometimes this isn't possible, but very often it's possible to find a better moment to do it. You can look at the way that they try and get the message across. Think about those airline safety cards um, I'm fascinated by those, by the way. My, my website is themed around airline safety cards because I think it's a really good example of how uh, you take something very complex and you make it simple for people to understand. And that's in graphic form, but you can do the same thing in other contexts. So 
I, I tend to look around and say, what, what problem are we trying to solve and how has somebody else potentially solved that uh, in another context? And if you look at those other contexts, things that are successful, things that people spend lots of money on are very often not the way that we go about it in compliance. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I, I, did, I think if the airlines were sending the safety training instruction few months before your flight, nobody would have seen that, I guess. Um, unless they make it with a test at the end and you don't get on the plane if you don't pass the test of how to buckle your seatbelt. <laughs> right, right. But, they, but you know, they, there's lots of examples of things where processes, they, they recognize a problem and they say, what is the way that we can be most effective? And one of the things that's interesting when you think about compliance requirements is we often think uh, we have to get 100% of people doing this all of the time. But actually, in many cases, we don't. In many cases, we want to, to make sure people do it under the right circumstances for the right reasons. So think about whistleblowing. You don't want every single employee in your organization to be whistleblowing. You don't want to incentivize that too much. Because unless they've got something legitimate to whistleblow about, you will get a lot of false reporting. Uh, you'll waste a lot of time and you'll irritate people. So we need to find a way, in the case of whistleblowing, to motivate people for the right reasons under the right circumstances. That is very different to something you need people to do all of the time and you need every single employee to do all of the time. And so the approach you adopt for one is very different to the approach you adopt for the other. And very often, compliance requirements, particularly in the space of conduct, come with a qualitative element. In other words, it's not binary like, like a speed limit. You know, you're either driving within the speed limit or you're not. A lot of compliance things come with a sort of qualitative element, which is you know, doing the right thing. Ethics is a good example of this. Or mm. you know, treating your customers fairly. And that requires people to be engaged in the topic. And if you are just treating everything like people must do this because it's a requirement and you codify everything, you will get bad outcomes. So what we need to do is focus on what are we trying to achieve? And if we're honest about what we're trying to achieve, you know, do we really need everybody to do this all of the time or is it just as many as possible? Is this absolutely mission critical? And it, it, you know, there are some things where you, you, there's no question, you need to have that 100% lockdown. But there are other things where you don't. And identifying that, allows you then to start calibrating not just your monitoring of it and the, and, and the sort of sanctions that you issue for breaches of those things, but it actually allows you to design frameworks that recognize that. So if it's something where I need your engagement, if I, if I effectively shout at you and tell you to do it, what will happen is you will, do what I, you will do things that I can verify. But in many cases, a lot of the things that go wrong in firms it, they catch it after the event. What you want to do is you want to stop it happening in the first place, and you want to give every opportunity to it not happening. And so the important thing there is if you need people to work with you, if there's a qualitative element, if there's bits you can't see or you can't see until it's too late, then you need to get their engagement. And you don't get their engagement by threatening them, uh, making it boring, not thinking about the realities of the world they're in. And so that's the real focal point here is thinking about employees and thinking about it from their perspective. And we often don't. We rely on the employment contract and we say, because I employ you, I can tell you what to do. That is legally correct. And of course, you, you can rely on that up to a point. And if you rely on that for everything, you will end up with programs that, that just don't engage the employees. And that's the big challenge here. And we need to start thinking about our employees in the same way as we do customers. They have minds of their own, they have responses to things, and we need to work with that if we want the outcomes that we're looking for.
do you have um, any kind of interesting examples or success stories in which uh, organizations have changed for the better a certain part without, of course, naming any names or um, anything, just uh, any kind of interesting examples to highlight how the uh, more engaging uh, compliance environment helps uh, truly? Yeah, let me let me let me give you let me give you one of, one of my favorite examples um, because I think this really illustrates the difference between something that feels logical and something that, that actually works. And I've, I was involved in one process where uh, they were looking at marketing materials. So this was advertisements, websites, com client communications. And as you know, in financial services, that's very tightly controlled. So there's lots of things you need to disclose. There's lots of rules around it. And so one of the things that often happens is you say, well, the way that we will mitigate that risk is we will put an extra pair of, we'll get compliance need to review this particular process. And it's very logical. You say, we'll put an extra pair of independent eyes on it and then we will catch everything. And so that looks like a really good control. It's very, very time consuming. It's very expensive because of the volume of, of, of output, but it, it makes logical sense, except when you start to think about it and you say, well, what impact does that control have on the individuals that are creating the marketing materials? And the answer is, if you know that somebody in compliance is going to look at your work, you are not incentivized to take less risk, you're incentivized to take more risk because you will assume that they will catch it. So because that control exists, you can, you can absolutely push it, push the envelope. And that is unhelpful because one of the things that the control doesn't catch is what is called errors of omission. So if you think about conduct risk, a lot of the things that you put in uh, marketing materials are disclosures uh, about uh, you know, the way the product will perform under certain circumstances. There are things that you need to disclose to make clients aware of it. Now, a compliance officer who's reviewing a piece of marketing material can see what's in what you've written. They can't see what you haven't said, and they don't know. They're not experts in the product. So they have no way of knowing what it is you haven't disclosed. So there's a really good example of the control is weak in the first place, which is the compliance person can't tell that you should have disclosed this product would perform in a particular way. So they're not looking for that. And the person creating the material is incentivized to kind of push the marketing material to the limits. So you've got this control that is very time consuming, very expensive, that sends precisely the wrong signal to the people who are crystallizing the risk in the first place, which is you just go for it because somebody else is looking at this. and. Yeah, there are lots of examples in other contexts where they've removed the equivalent of four eyes checks. So the, the US Navy is a good example on their aircraft carriers. They used to have people who would perform checks and they realized that that was incentivizing pilots and other people not to do the thing themselves. And of course, if you have two people involved in a process, if they both know that the other person is there, uh, they will both assume the other person's done it. So if I'm reviewing it, maybe I don't need to review it because, well, they'll have thought about this, won't they? And then I don't need to think about it if I'm preparing the material because the person checking it will catch that. And so you end up with some terrible outcomes. And so if you start to look at controls like that, they look great on paper, but they're terrible from a human perspective. So what do you do instead? Well, the answer is you bring in training programs. You, you don't have a control for everything. You introduce spot checks. There are very clever things you can do with, with technology that can scan documents. You structure it so that the person producing the material uh, has to take personal responsibility, and they're aware of that personal responsibility. Um, you maybe have to introduce a licensing program. So if people want to do a particular form of material, they have to go through some training that allows them to do that. 
Um, but the key objective here is you want to put them in a position where they could, in theory, at three o'clock in the morning, release some marketing materials. There is no need for a check and they know there's no check. That means they take more responsibility. It feels riskier, but from a psychological perspective, is much stronger. And so that's an example of where behavioral science, thinking about the dynamics, what will the people going through this process be thinking, where you can identify techniques that are firstly more effective, but secondly, much more cost effective as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- th- those are really interesting examples. I can confirm for sure that when you have the second check, you feel more confident that if you made a mistake, the other person will anyway figure it out, right? right. <laughs> um, you'll have somebody uh, there to check for you. Um, and what kind of advice or tips you can uh, share with us on designing more effective compliance framework? As you mentioned, that that's something that people would like to take a look at. Yeah, so my biggest tip here is that when things go wrong, when things aren't working the way we expect them to, our typical response is to blame people, right? So we go, that was terrible. Lots of people not complying with the policy, bad people. And if you have one or two people that aren't complying with the policy, then that is probably a case of bad people. But if you have lots of people who aren't complying with a particular policy, they're not doing your training, they are maybe failing to follow a particular procedure then lots you don't have in your organization, you won't have lots and lots of people that are deliberately breaking the rules. You will have people following a natural flow. And if there's lots of them doing it, my point is to say, you need to look at why that might be the case. And that doesn't start with the individuals, that starts with the environment. What is it in the environment that is prompting that behavior? And very often you discover that the rules that are most often broken are the ones that are complicated, the ones where it's really difficult the ones where you have to wade through a ton of policy or where maybe maybe the, the interface that you have to work, the system you have to use is unclear. And there's lots of times when I, I come across and, and people say we have a compliance problem and you know we, we, we've got all these people aren't doing what we want. And I say, well, don't start with the people, start with the organization. And that's not to say that you let people off if they are deliberately breaking the rules. But if you've got lots and lots of people who aren't following a rule, that's a rule problem, not a people problem. And you need to rethink the way that you communicate and structure that. And that, you know, that if you start to think in those terms, that opens up all sorts of possibilities because you suddenly recognize that actually, you know, your program may not be as effective as you think it is. And doing things that are theoretical, particularly where the, the, the is slightly technical and, you know, compliance has, has codified the regulations into some sort of process. That is fine if you're a compliance person, but the people in business just want to do their jobs. They don't want to be compliance experts. And so if they have to try and understand what the rules are and relates to the circumstances they're in, that's a lot of effort. And I see the, com- <clears throat> the compliance role is very much around translating it. Tell people what it is they need to do in language they can understand that relates to the role they're in. And so, you know, lots of training, for example, we talk in theoretical terms. We talk about the world like it is black and white. We don't talk to people about the world as being gray. And and what's interesting is that generally speaking, people don't need help with the black and white. If it is obvious, you don't need to spend time telling people that. They know that. What they need help with is where it gets a bit more complicated. And if you do all of these things, what's amazing is all of a sudden, if you have made it as easy as possible, you thought about it from the employee experience, where you end up is a world where if you then have people breaking the rules, then you know that it's deliberate. 
then it is their, their fault. But if you make this world where it's complex and somebody could break the rules because they're deliberately trying to break the rules, or it's just as possible that you've accidentally broken the rules because it's not clear, then you have this, this confusion between the two. And so this process makes it easier for the average employee to, to do the right thing and easier to identify the people that really are doing wrong for, you know, for bad reasons. Absolutely, yeah. The business doesn't need to be a compliance expert the same way as the, the compliance experts should not understand each and every product or, or, or everything that the business does, right? Um, so many times I think compliance is trying to feed other functions <laughs> with some information that is delivered not, not with the right language and not with the right understanding that the business can grasp it easily and um, be compliant. So um, that said, can people have fun with compliance? And if yes, how? <laughs> yeah, look, there's, there, there's, there's no question that you can make compliance more fun. So the first thing I would do if I had the choice was I would get the brand is terrible, right? We should get rid of that word. It's awful. <laughs> but if we can't do that, and I know that in many industries that is not, not possible because regulators like it. Um, the way that we present compliance, I think, you know, needs needs careful thinking. And that's everything from training. So there's obvious examples where you can make training more engaging. Um, that doesn't mean everything has to have cartoon characters or everything has to be a game show. But I do think we, we make a mistake when we think about topics, because very often we assume, firstly, that the target audience is interested and they may not be. We, you know, if, if anybody was particularly interested in rules and regulations, they'd be a compliance officer. So the first thing to remember is that you're not talking to people who want to become specialists in your subject. You are talking to people who want to be able to do their job without breaking the law and with, in a compliant manner. So how are you helping them do that? Uh, how are you presenting these things to them? So theoretical scenarios, you know, a lot of the mandatory training asks questions that are convenient for the easily, easy, easy to test questions, right? We'll ask you how many years you go to jail if you fail to comply with this rule. That is lazy because no one is sitting there going, ah, well, if this, if I break this rule, I'm going to jail for five years. Whereas if I break that rule, I'm going to jail for 10, I'll take the five-year option, right? It's useless information. You just need to know that it's a serious rule. And so a lot of the things that we do is we frame things in a manner that is sort of, because it's a serious thing, we have to present it seriously. And I would say, if you really want people to engage with something, you need to find ways that are human. And human beings don't like boring things. Human beings like interesting stories, things they can use. And so we have to think about it in that perspective and say, how can we make this as easy to navigate and as engaging as possible? And so that's really about talking, you know, what do you need people to, we often don't think about training. What do we want people to do? You know, we don't need them to understand the name of the rule or the, you know, the genesis of the regulation. And what, what we need them to understand is what does this mean? What, why is this rule in place? What risk are we mitigating? very important for people to understand the why but then we say well, what do we need you to do how do we how do we help you to navigate this thing and so a lot of stuff that's transmitted sort of feels good from the compliance we've told them everything they need to know you haven't you've told them everything you need to know and what they need to know is what does this mean for their job how how can they deal with it on the ground and so focusing specifically on the situations that they will recognize using language that they will understand and if you do that, you go a long way to making it more engaging and, and it'll feel more fun. It'll feel less onerous because suddenly you understand what they're telling you in the context of your day job. 
And, and that connection is really, really important. And if you think about when you buy a new gadget, for example, you know, I'm a man, I don't read instruction manuals. I expect it to just work out of the box. I don't want to have to think. Well, if that applies in my personal life, then the same thing's going to apply at work. I just want to be helped to be able to make this work. So, you know, a lot of these things that will help to make it engaging. But we, we should also just be thinking about ourselves in compliance as, as marketers. We need to market this stuff. Why should they listen to it? And we sometimes think we have a sort of right to be heard. And I say, particularly in the current environment where you've got remote and hybrid working, you, know, you need to get people's attention. And you need to really engage them. And so one of the skills I think is sometimes lacking is an ability to engage with people digitally, but, but equally you know, face-to-face as well. How do, we, how, do we, how do we demonstrate authority? How do we demonstrate empathy? How do we demonstrate that we, you know, we really understand what they are trying to do and that what make it relevant to them? And so I'm focused very heavily on a lot of techniques that you can use to get better interactions digitally, to think about how you can engage people. And I borrow heavily from things like YouTube and Peloton and a host of other things. Not that you, not that you copy exactly what they do, but if you have a look at the techniques they use to grab attention, that's where we can get really smart about this. So, you know, traditionally we would force people to do training for an hour or half an hour because that's a traditional slot. Why don't you give people five minute micro learning? Keep it, snap, and do that more frequently. Why do we have these big, clunky, you know, annual attestation Ugh. is a horrible <laughs> thing. Why do we do that once a year? Wouldn't it be better to say to people every month we're going to do a different, a different policy area and we're going to do some things around it to make sure you've really understood it? That would be much more engaging. Instead, you have processes that are designed for organizational convenience. Yeah. Sending people, you know, I, I've seen lots of examples of, of some mandatory training that was sent out two days before Christmas. That's not for the benefit of the employee. That's a terrible time to send that out because people have got other things on their mind. So if we start to think about all these things and say, would we do this to a customer? And if the answer to that is no, then we should start to think about whether it is a good idea to do it to employees. Now, sometimes you have to, and maybe, maybe that you've got no choice. But very often we have a choice and we make the wrong choice. We make a choice that's convenient to us, not that works best for them. Absolutely right. When you were mentioning about the training and the why, how and what, it reminded me um, a TEDx talk that, oh, I, I forgot the name of the person, but I remember like the golden circles. Always start with the why, why people need to do something, then explain how they can do that and finish with the what, like the, the more uh, not that important um, question, I guess, that the last circle. Um, and speaking of some resources, you mentioned uh, some websites. Is there any other recommended learning resources like books, papers, anything that uh, made great impression on you and that compliance officer ca- can use in their work? Yeah, so there, there is. I mean, there are so many books out there, and one of the one of the, one of the challenges that you have is is people still read it. So how can I apply that in my? This is fascinating. But how do I apply that in my thing? So one of the things I try to do is to bridge that gap. So in the same way that compliance people are there to help the business understand enough about regulation to be able to do their job, but don't not become regulatory experts. A lot of what I do is helping compliance people to know enough behavioral science that they can use it effectively in their roles, but not to become behavioral scientists. So uh, the first quick answer to that is if people go to my website, which is human-risk.com, 
you will find a lot of material there. I have a newsletter where I regularly dissect things that are going on and, and sort of look at it through the lens of behavioral science to sort of understand what can we learn from that particular situation. Um, I have a podcast as well where I do similar things and, and, and speak to people on, on these sorts of topics. And I have video blogs and other things on my website. So human-risk.com is a good place to start. And what I try and do then via social media is also highlight things that I think are of interest. So people can, can follow me on Twitter, Human Risk LTD, or connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, and, and that's another good way of filtering through the stuff. If you want a good entry point book by someone, anything by Dan Ariely is highly recommended. I know you had Kelly Paxton on who also recommended Dan's work. He's one of those academics that writes in a really engaging way and makes it real for people. The challenge you're going to face is that it, you will understand the behavioral science from the perspective of the real world. It's sometimes very difficult to make that leap into well, how do I use this in my day job? And that's the bit where I try and I try and fill that particular gap. So very happy to hear people connect with me and, and I can kind of set you off on the journey. I do have various reading lists, but again, it depends on people's interests. And one of the things I'm really cautious of doing is to say, well, if you read this, you'll solve the problem. Depending on what you're curious about, curiosity is a great thing. Uh, I can point you in the right direction. So if people want to get in touch with me, I'm happy to guide them through the mass of books depending, and, and videos and films, depending on where they want to go. That's perfect. I'll include all these links also in the show notes in case uh, someone didn't uh, manage to catch them. Um, Amazing. So- if you, if you have anything to add, like as a link, please feel free to share with me. Perfect. Um, and a final question in compliance time is always about the future. We are trying to um, predict so, some of the events that will happen in AML compliance space. So in your view, uh, how do you see the future uh, for compliance? So I think we are facing a ton of challenges. Um, you know, organizations are trying to keep their costs down. The world is becoming more challenging and there are probably a greater number of risks out there than there have been for some time. We tend to think of the world as getting safer. And of course, it is in some respects. Um, you know, machines are much more reliable. So we've cut down on physical danger is much, much reduced. But if we look at the possibilities of what could go wrong in the compliance space, um, not no, sorry, in compliance, but within, within the business. The, the answer is human beings are, have a greater possibility of causing you problems than ever before. So if you think about social media, um, every single employee becomes a unit of risk. And historically, that would not have been the case. But you do something embarrassing on social media, and it can get linked to your employer very, very quickly. There's that, that linkage yeah. is made. We give people email addresses, which connect them to their work. We give people access to computer systems that allow them to do all kinds of things. So as I see that, the the challenges we're faced in the sort of human risk space, which compliance ultimately has the majority of the responsibility for managing, that is going to get more and more difficult. Where do we draw the lines between uh, reputational risk for companies and people's personal lives and what they're allowed to do in those personal lives? Getting very, very difficult and complicated. And so I think there are going to be a lot of changes coming in terms of what risks we need to mitigate. And therefore, we need to have a very, very flexible approach. And we know that regulation is always behind the curve. So how do you build a forward-looking compliance function? Well, the answer is you need to have quite a flexible regime. And we need to be thinking intelligently and spotting risks before they appear. And so if you thought about something like COVID, it was on everybody's risk register somewhere. But the implications that that had was huge. 
And so thinking ahead and saying, well, what could happen and how will we flex our program to do that? You know, adaptability, resilience, all of these things, absolutely critical. So I don't want to get into the business of predicting exactly what will happen, but I can predict the dynamics, which is that we're going to be facing different kinds of risk. You, yesterday's risks will still be there to a certain extent, but we'll mitigate those. And we need to be thinking about tomorrow's risks and challenges. And I think the issue with compliance really is to say, we mustn't just look at what the regulator is saying. We need to be looking ahead and saying, okay, there may not be a rule about this, but we should have one. We should be managing on that basis. And so a lot of compliance functions are viewed as you are there to implement what the regulator says. Make sure we don't irritate the regulator. That's got to be not just the regulator today, but the regulator tomorrow in a year's time, because we've seen lots of examples where the regulators look back. And there may not have been a specific rule preventing something, but they will find a way to get to you if you do something they don't want. So we need to have a very forward-looking, very flexible framework that is grounded in doing the right thing. You know, lots of laws and regulations permit you to do things that are not particularly good, what we call lawful but awful. Those laws will change. And so compliance needs to get ahead of the curve and be thinking about those things and identifying them before they happen. So I think the skills that we need in compliance may be very different. We need to be thinking you know, much more in terms of creativity. We need to be much better at communicating. We need to be much better at um, predicting where things might go, spotting problems before they arise. So I think that is like, it's a big task, but it's very, very exciting. And so if we don't get that right, you will forever be stuck in the past. And in a fast moving world, you don't wanna be caught on the wrong side of things. And we've seen lots of examples of people that are slow to catch up. You don't want to be catching up in this space. You want to be understanding it and in control of it. And so we need to harness technology. We need to harness behavioral science. And we need to teach ourselves and constantly update the skill sets that we have. Exactly. Compliance does not have to be just reactive to what the regulator wants now, but proactive looking. Yeah, and if you're having to react to the regulator, then that's quite worrying. Because actually, if you think about regulation, most of the regulations are, you know, by, it takes time to put regulations together. It is, it is very, very much, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a sort of lagging indicator. If you are having to put things in, it means that you're even slower than the regulator to grasp an issue. So what you need to do, if you get ahead of it and you can see where it's going and you say, actually, that this is a risk, this is a risk that is likely to have an issue for the regulator, rather than waiting for the rules to appear, if you go ahead of that, you'll get two benefits. One, you'll be ready when the rules come in, you might have to make some small changes, but you'll have a pretty good idea. The second thing, if you are seen to be tackling these things, regulators will give you some credit because they'll go, they're actually trying to take this thing seriously. And more to the point, when the regulator comes to look to write the rules, they will go and look and say, is anybody doing this well? If you are the firm that has already thought about an issue, has controls in place and is effectively managing a risk, then it will be you that they point to as best practice. So you can literally influence the way regulation goes if you're ahead of the curve. Otherwise, you will always be a forced take of what the regulator says. It puts you in a much stronger position, both from a, a relationship building perspective with the regulator, but also practically in terms of what they put in their rules. If somebody's already done this effectively, regulators will see that and they'll be more likely to adopt that approach. And that's where you want to be. That's a really great conclusion. Um, Thank you very much again for your participation in Compliance Time. Um, I really encourage people to check out the Human Risk website, the podcast, and uh, to follow you on social media because the content is really, really great and there is a lot to learn from. 
Um, and yeah, thanks again for your time and being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. And look, I, I love the fact that you've done this podcast. I think it's, 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 it's great fun. I've listened to some of the previous episodes. I've really enjoyed them. So uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Compliance Time. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to leave us a review, which will help others to find the podcast. Also, you can subscribe for email updates on our website, cmpltime.com. And don't forget, check out our new blog. Thank you. Till next week.